I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. This is our Easter podcast, and we this year we're going to talk about Luke 24, 1 through 12, and I'm going to have Alan kind of tell you about how this fits into the Revised Common Lectionary. Yeah, thanks, Christy. So one of the features of the Revised Common Lectionary is that the first gospel reading, so-called, you know, the, the primary gospel reading in all three years of Easter Sunday is the account of Mary Magdalene, Peter, and the beloved disciple at the tomb and Jesus' appearance to Mary in John 20, 1 through 18. They do that all three years of the, of the lectionary. However, in each of the years, the account of the discovery of the empty tomb in the individual synoptic gospels is listen, listed as a secondary reading. And last year, we took a look at the passage in Mark's gospel because there's some important and unique details there. And the same is true, I think, of Luke's account of the women at the empty tomb. And so we've chosen again to go with the secondary mm-hmm. gospel reading today. I like, I like this version by Luke. So I was excited to get to do it it just has these interesting nuances that are different um yeah than yeah. The well other and ones. we're going to find next year that matthew has some right unique and features as well you know as we talked about last year and especially with these easter stories we tend to collapse them all together yeah, in fact right. i i was i was thinking that again today and so it's i think it's important for us to really really be able to take these out and look at them individually sure, sure. um so Anyway, um, this account of of the events of this uh, of this resurrection day, they're in all the synoptics. Yep, that's right. Yeah. All three synoptic gospels tell us that this event, uh, the sco- the discovery of the empty tomb by the women, took place on the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. That is Sunday. We think of the first day of the week as Monday, but in in biblical terms, that, that would have been Sunday. Well, our calendars still have Sunday as the first. Day they the do. Week, they when you do. Think about it. They yeah. Do. Yeah. You're but right. no, you're right. I think many Americans would think of it as being right. Right. Yeah. And all three synoptic gospels also indicate in some way that it happened early in the morning. They each have their own way of saying that. And Luke's, Luke's gospel says at early dawn. Anyway, Luke goes on to tell us that they came to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. And this is, of course, very different from the story in John's gospel that indicates that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared Jesus' body for burial prior to mm-hmm, the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a little bit different. I mean, it's kind of interesting that in all three synoptic gospels, Joseph alone asks for Jesus' body and lays mm-hmm. it in a tomb wrapped in linen, but not prepared. So that mm-hmm. kind of sets the stage for the women going to the tomb in all three synoptic mm-hmm. gospels. Mm-hmm. And it would appear, seem apparent that the Jewish burial custom called for wrapping a body in layers of linen and spices, very likely mm-hmm. to mask the odor of the decaying body. Right, right. And so, <laughs> interesting um, with the reformers trying to make sense of this is they're collapsing. It was kind of interesting as you're, as you're talking about this, and and some of them are like, "Well, his body was already prepared, so I guess they were going to like put super spices. They were just being and there's a lot of a lot of criticism of these dumb women. Right. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's just different accounts. Exact, and, and exactly. That's, that's something we'll talk about a little right, bit later. Right. But, but uh, uh, they, it, it's incredibly difficult to harmonize these account. These, it really this is. section of the gospel. It really into is. One narrative. So yeah. yeah, they had they had fun trying to do that. Yeah. So we move on to, of course, the very complicated question of the stone. Yeah, yeah. So and actually, the text of 
Codex D or Codex Basic Cantabrigiensis inserts the question recounted in Mark 16, 3. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone? But none of the other Gospels includes mm-hmm. this detail, and Luke is no exception. The women in Luke's Gospel simply come to the tomb, and Luke tells us that while they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, when they went into the tomb, they did not find the mm-hmm. body. So, you know, there's no discussion of the issue of how will the women enter the tomb. Mm-hmm. They just assume, I guess, that they're going to be able to get in. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, um, only Luke's gospel gives us the explicit statement that the women did not find the body. That's only found among in the whole gospel tradition. That's only found in mm-hmm. Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's assumed though, when you think about well, it is. Process. But no, I mean, but I mean but that's it. an important statement. He yeah. states it yeah. explicitly, yeah. There is. There may be a parallel with John's account of Peter and the beloved disciple finding only the burial cloths. Yeah, yeah. Um, but only Luke tells us that hmm. the women did not find the body. And there is a significant textual um, issue here. Um, some of the best um, manuscripts of Luke's gospel, including Papyrus 75, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus, or P75, Olive A and B in your textual, in your textual apparatus, add the, the body of the Lord Jesus. They add of the Lord Jesus mm. here. And the, the current version of the Greek New Testament actually includes it in the Greek text. So, and if you look at the other English translations, you find that, in fact, the new RSV is sort of an outlier in the English Bible tradition uh, in, in putting this in a footnote. They mm. put, us, put it in a textual footnote. Mm. But the majority of English Bible translations actually include the phrase, including NIV, oh, English Standard Version, many, many of the contemporary translations, you know, have, the, have they went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Mm. Well, so that's a good, that's a good clarification. I mean, it's always a good clarification. I, I think what we're seeing, I think what we're seeing here is the influence of um, Bruce Metzger. Yeah, <laughs> because Bruce Metzger was involved heavily in the Greek New Testament uh, of the of the time when the NRC is being made, and Bruce Metzger was the editor right. in chief of the New RSV, and he was a great Presbyterian scholar gentleman, but. Um, he, he may have missed it on this one. Well, you know, I knew um, Sidney Wright Crawford, who worked on the the Common English Bible, mm-hmm. and also a professor of mine from Dubuque, Matt, Matthew Schlimm. But it was really interesting to hear their discussions yeah. um, as they were inputting, you know, how how they would in, how they would translate it, and the kinds of the decision process made for what actually is going to what's going to go. Yeah, and it's made by the committees. Choices are made. Choices are made. Yeah, and that includes that includes not only in translation but also in the edition of the Greek New Testament. Well, and uh, uh, translation and in approach to translating, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Ver, you know, and and I've always I, I when I did him him work, one of the challenges was do you do as close to literal as possible. But then you lose the poetic nature mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. But if you go too poetic, then sometimes you lead miss the literal translation. Right, and right. so, and sometimes you have to choose something in between because that's going to make most sense right. in the language you're right. changing it to. Right. And so it's really a challenge. Well, and again, as I said, even here, it's even a disagreement about the Greek text. Exactly. And that has yeah. to do with textual methodology that, exactly. and how you weigh the manuscripts yeah, and things exactly. like that. Yeah, exactly. So this, I mean, what... The, I, I will say this, you know... 
you know, whether or not it has the, the, the original text had the body of the Lord Jesus, whether or not it had that doesn't significantly alter the meaning of this. True. Text. That's true. But I think it does um, remind us that the people that come down with some idea that this is the only translation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are really are really um, not paying attention to this rich heritage and these 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 numbers of, of manuscripts we well, have. Well, and I, I've always said, you know, I, I worked in the Baptist world where inerrancy was was something <laughs> that was that was a big deal. And you know, I, my point was, I don't want to. I mean, they were always talking about the inerrancy of the original manuscripts, which we don't have. Right. I wasn't concerned about talking about the authority of a Bible that we don't will never have. I wanted to know. I want my my concern was how do we how do we conceive of the authority of the Bible as we have it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so some interesting questions there. Yeah, right. Um, so we're go- moving on then um, into this this next place where where Luke talks about the the angels, the yeah. angelic messengers. Yeah, and it's interesting that in in Luke he recounts the appearance of the angelic messengers. It's mm-hmm. plural, not singular, as right. in Matthew and Mark. Right. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. And that Luke says that there were two men and not one is only shared by John's gospel. John also has two angels mm-hmm. in, his, um, in his narrative. The other synoptics only have one. And perhaps one could say that Luke or his source felt that every matter had to be confirmed by two or three mm-hmm, witnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll see. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so, how did the women, yeah, the women responded to So that. then Luke tells us the women were terrified and bowed, to their faces, bowed their faces to the ground. And this, this is kind of a common way of responding to an appearance of an angel or specifically the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Bible. Here, perhaps it was a combination of factors, the stone rolled away, the absence of Jesus' body, and the two angelic messengers all combined, perhaps, to create mm-hmm. this response. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Um, and so then, how does the angel, the angels respond to the women? So the, the first, um, really the first part of what they say to the women is, you know, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And I think it's important to note that it is the risen Jesus here who is called the living one. Why do you search for the living one? We might translate this mm. among the dead. Uh, because, you know, and I, I see a connection oh. between this and the fact that throughout the Greek Bible, both the Septuagint and, and the New Greek New Testament, it is God who is identified as the living one using the pres- present participle of zao as here. Mm-hmm. You know, you seek ton zonta, the living one. Mm-hmm. And so the living one is Jesus who has been raised from the dead. Now, given the prevalence of the notion that God is the living God in the Septuagint, along with the phrase, as the Lord lives, both of those are found throughout the Septuagint. I would suggest that in his resurrection, Jesus partakes of God's very life. And theologically, I would add, he partakes of God's very life again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, in a similar way, Jürgen Moltmann in his um, The Way of Jesus Christ suggests that Jesus was alive in the glory of God mm-hmm. and that it was in this, in this glory that he appeared to them. So either way, I mean, I think, the import, I think it's important for us to see the emphasis on Jesus, the risen Christ, as the living one. Right. And, and thus the inappropriateness of looking for the living, the living. one among right. the dead. Now, and I, I'm really, this is intriguing to me because I have only ever seen it as the living, not the living one. Mm-hmm. And that changes 
in my 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 mind or my my visual and what that means as you pointed out so it, it actually has a, a much richer a deeper meaning when when you understand that this the living one might be a better translation for it it brings in that theology right mm-hmm. I mean, and you know it, it emphasizes the fact that you know um, Jesus is not just resuscitated right he has been raised right. by right. God to new life right yeah. Yeah. okay and then Luke really takes a different turn. He really does. Yeah, in Matthew and Mark, the angelic messenger directs the women to tell the 11 that Jesus was going ahead of them to Galilee and they would see him there. But in Luke's gospel, there's a mention of Galilee, but it's very different. Mm -hmm. In verses 6 and 7, Luke tells us, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. So... You know, here, of course, the angelic messengers are reciting the gist of Jesus' passion predictions in the synoptic tradition. We've seen that, mm-hmm. you know, that there were these three distinct passion predictions and perhaps even an extra one in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this only happens at the empty tomb in Luke's gospel. The rest mm-hmm. of the gospels don't have any kind of reminder about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there are two reasons for this. I think first in Luke and Acts, as we've said before, everything important, including the crucifixion, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances, and the ascension, all happens at Jerusalem. Yes, yes, yes. But I would also suggest that the second reason is something we've already found in Luke's gospel. I think Luke is trying to connect the dots for his audience. He's, he's yes. connecting the dots between the passion predictions and what the women have discovered at the empty tomb. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I don't know, and I, I think that you pointed this out, is that people realize this. I mean, I mm-hmm. think I think casual casual listeners don't see this difference between Galilee and right. Jerusalem. Right. Again, the collapsed version. Right. Um, and I do think it's really significant for Luke's gospel. I think in the in the collapsed or harmonized version, what has happened is is just the the, the idea is that they went to Galilee and then they came back to Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, right? I think something like that. Yeah. And so this is important, but this is important to this gospel and this particular town. Yeah, in Luke as, and as Acts and in John's gospel, there is no indication of right. any resurrection, post-resurrection appearances or ascension or anything in Galilee. It all right. takes place in Jerusalem. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Now, I will say also notably absent here in comparison with the other synoptic gospels is any explicit explicit commission to the women to report what they have learned, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. They do so anyway, right? But, right. But um, the, there is no, you know, the, in Matthew and Mark, they're specifically told right, to go right. to the others and tell mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So uh, Luke continues then. Yeah, Luke continues. They remembered his words. This is significant, I think. Um, this is not just narrative transition. I think it's important in Luke's theology that the women actually remembered the passion predictions and, and understood and believed. Mm-hmm. I think this, all of that is, is, is intended and in they remembered his words. Mm-hmm. So I think Luke is, is, is intending to convey the idea that these women who were the first to witness the empty tomb, who were the first to receive the message of Jesus' resurrection, they remembered Jesus' passion predictions, mm-hmm. they understood right. what had happened, and they believed. Right, right, so, right. Then returning from the tomb, they told all this to the 11 and to all the rest. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it's important also that at this point, Luke actually names the women and not at the outset. It, you know, in Matthew mm-hmm. and Mark, right. they the name the women right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But here, 
Luke holds it off until now. And he says, now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, you know, the only other mention that we know about Joanna or Mary, we don't have any, well, we have, we, Mary, the mother of James is also mentioned in Mark's gospel. Mm -hmm, Right. Joanna is also mentioned in Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3. And, mm-hmm. and again, in Luke's gospel, Luke is the only one to tell us explicitly the names of the women who followed Jesus in Galilee and actually who they provided for Jesus in the 12. And he names Mary Magdalene, Joanna, who is further identified as the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna. But then Luke also includes many others. Right, at that right, point. Exa- exactly. And uh, at least we, we know that these women were part of the... They were part, part of, of Jesus' disciples. Jesus's, yeah, disciples yeah. groups. Yeah. So. They were part of the people who followed him. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's forgotten a lot because mm-hmm. other women doesn't have all the names. Like we have disciples named and, and things, right. but but they're important for the ministry, we know. Yes, indeed. Um, so moving on then, um, how did the how did the disciples respond to the women? Yeah, Luke tells us that the disciples didn't believe the women's report. You know, he says these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And actually, Luke's language in the Greek is a little bit more striking. I would say the eleven thought the women's report was pure nonsense. Mm-hmm. And actually, and again, the word that's used here, we saw this when we were looking at uh, Luke twenty-four earlier on uh, in the year, I think, or, or last year. Um, we saw that. Um, Luke also uses this this verb apisteo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they refused to believe. Really, is the idea because apisteo is more commonly used in the New Testament for those who are faithless or those who refuse mm-hmm. to believe. So it wasn't just that they didn't believe; they refused to believe. Yeah, right, right, right. And I would say it's likely that the eleven refused to believe simply because it was the women who gave them the report. And in Jewish society, mm-hmm. you know, basically Josephus tells us that women's um, uh, reports weren't to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And so it was a rather sexist thing, probably. Mm, yeah, it, it, it could be. It, it, it could. I suppose there's something to be said of just the disbelief. Surely. Um, that, that, that even though Jesus predicted this and said this would happen, that just goes against our mm-hmm. our understanding well, of death. And, and we saw this last year. You know, as as we as I mentioned last year when we looked at Luke twenty four, another part of Luke twenty four, um, it it, in, it would appear that the gospel writers have different notions about what it takes to create faith at this point for the disciples. For Mark, it's the crucifixion. You know, that's the high point. The, the Roman centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. In Matthew and John, it is simply the appearance of the risen Christ. Although in Matthew, he indicates that some still doubted even when they saw the risen mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. In Luke, it takes the risen Christ opening their minds to understand the Scripture. So they not only have to witness the crucifixion, they not only have to see the risen Christ and experience the risen Christ, but Jesus has to help them understand all of this in order for them to come mm-hmm, to faith mm-hmm. in Luke's gospel. And so that's, I think perhaps that that may be what's reflected here in their initial response mm-hmm, to the women's mm-hmm. report. Yeah, as well. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now then I find it interesting that Luke's account of the empty tomb concludes with an allusion to John's account, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. This is very similar to John's account in John 20 verses three through 10. Mm -hmm. And again, as we saw before, it would seem that there's a connection between Luke's and John's passions narratives. 
Now, although there's no indication of faith on Peter's part as yet, as yet, mm-hmm. at least he does take the step of seeing for himself, and his response is that of being amazed, and the verb is thalmazo, and we saw when we mm-hmm. were going through Mark's gospel right. that that's a common response to Jesus in the gospels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tell us, um, yeah, Alan's prepared some, um, some kind of theological background for us, so uh, tell us about a little bit of how these theologians, modern theologians, look at um, these gospel narratives. Well, you know, ever since the Enlightenment and the rise of modern historical methods, you know, the, the question of being able to prove the resurrection has come up, mm-hmm. right? right? Right. I don't think that was a. I don't think that was even an issue before the Enlightenment. And no, no, this is yeah, exactly. This is this is this goes along with scientific re- revolution, right? Yeah. This is, this is a question of wait a minute, we can't reconcile this with what we how we understand science to work. Right. So you're absolutely right. This is part of an enlightenment Well, and even issue. historically, how do you demonstrate a claim, right? How can you verify, how do you verify a claim? That's that's a demand that, that pe- some people want to make of, of the resurrection. Right. And, you know, theologians and biblical scholars reckon with the fact that the gospel's narratives of the resurrection take us into territory that is really beyond our ability to account for by rational or scientific or historical means. It is simply not possible to establish the resurrection as a historical event in the same way that we can even establish that Jesus lived or that he was crucified. We have you know, ec- extra biblical witnesses that mm-hmm. confirm that for us. So, so it seems like it's a, it's a historical fact that we can confirm. But even seeking to discuss the resurrection itself, I think, puts us beyond the categories of what we might call normal history or even normal science and into the realm of God's new creation. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, right. Jürgen Moltmann right. will call this an eschatological event. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that, that means it's not an event like any other historical event that can be verified because right. it's it's outside sort of c- common history, yeah, it, right? Well, yeah, and it's outside of our kind of our experience of in a we, sense yeah in yeah. a sense because it points forward to to the time when mm-hmm. god's new creation defines all reality right. and that hasn't come yet right so you know f- for example part of this the fact that we're beyond these normal categories part of this is that none of the re- gospels attempts to give any account of the actual resurrection that's true mm-hmm. now i will say the gospel of peter attempts to fill this gap but the canonical gospels don't do that. It's also, and as we said before, it's maddeningly difficult to harmonize the narratives of the empty tomb and the post-resurrection appearances in Jesus. I actually tried to do this back when I was in college, mm-hmm. and it, it's just incredibly, I mean, the, 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 the accounts don't harmonize well at all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's another factor, you know. And so, what do we have contradictory witnesses? I mean, that that's something that historians would look at as well. Right. But... I think the problem is, I mean, I think the, the problem you just point out, it, we want it to be a historical mm-hmm, event, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's the right way to describe I, no, I like how Moltzmann no. describes this. Yeah. I think that is a, a, better, a better way to understand it. And uh, instead of something, it, it seems like an experiential, experiential event. It is. It's a matter of faith. It's a it's faith, a matter of it's faith. A faith yeah. event. Yeah. Yes. Now, I will note at the same time as we recognize that it's hard to harmonize the narratives, all the Gospels, including the Gospel of Peter, agree on one detail. They connect the name of Mary Magdalene with the events mm-hmm. of Easter. Yes. All the Gospels agree on that. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a significant point of agreement, I think. 
But but another factor, I think, is our very language of talking about this event. We talk about the resurrection of Christ, and the New Testament doesn't use that language very much. Right. It primarily speaks of Christ as either having been raised mm-hmm. or as rising. And I think the distinction is not just a pedantic one. I think it's a significant one mm. because, you know, being raised from the dead is something that happens to Jesus, something that God does to Jesus. Mm-hmm. God raises Jesus from oh, the sure, dead. Oh, sure, sure, right? sure. And so it's not just some sort of um, miracle that just kind of happens. This is something that God does mm. to Jesus. Mm. And uh, also, I think we need to note that the resurrection is not a simple return to mortal life. It's not right. like he died in, right. on the table and he was resuscitated, right? right it was, right, right. you know, he died. And, and we're talking about the raising of Jesus into the eternal life right. of the new creation, which is already in the process of tramming, transforming all reality now, but it, is, it will not be complete until the work of redemption is complete. And so Hendrikus Burkhoff and his um, uh, Christian faith calls it a borderline event. This, and this makes sense, too. And I think it makes sense, too, when, you know, as I'm thinking about our funeral practices and, you know, this, this, this idea that the preservation of your current body right. you have to have it to be raised in it. No. And as we're pointing out, this is a different body. Yes. This is a, and, and I think that's important. I think that's reflected in this as well. You know, well, you know, Paul just will, resuscitating people. Paul will, Paul will say there's continuity between the, the action, you know, the, the physical body of Jesus of Nazareth and the risen body of the living Christ, but it's not the it's exact same body. It's a resurrection body. body. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a, a different body. kind right. of body. Yeah. It's not like it's a, <laughs> it's not like you, obviously they can recognize the uh, Lazarus, extent, for example, right? Lazarus was, was resuscitated. Exactly. We might say he exactly. was brought back from the dead, but into a mortal life. He was not resurrected exactly. as Jesus was. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so until the time that the work of God's redemption is complete, I think speaking about the resurrection must remain in the realm of faith and hope in the promise yeah, of God, I which I think is what inspires us to live in love in the here and now. And it's this change of life that we have this faith and hope and love that inspires us to live in a different way that is the only potential verification possible, I think, yeah, in, in, the, I, in the current I, time. I agree. I agree. And I think, I mean, that is in that that faith realm that people struggle with i mean mm-hmm. they want i don't want to believe in it they want to be I able to prove, prove it. it's true exactly and, and and shirley guthrie said it in his christian doctrine there is no proof that jesus rose from the dead yeah i mean yeah. In, a, in, a, in, a, in a strict scientific historical exactly. sense that's a true statement and i think i think the problem with that is because we keep putting our world in human terms mm-hmm. instead of and this is a this is a god this, sized this is a god sized event exactly yeah, exactly yeah. okay so let's tell us a little bit more You've well and so I, I think there's really no getting around the issue here that you know the faith of the first christians was not founded on arguments about the empty tomb but on their encounter mm-hmm. with the risen christ and that's also a quote from guthrie's well, christian doctrine yeah and and that makes sense yeah that, that makes sense it was it, 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 it's a faith event it's a, it's a personal mm-hmm. encounter that they had and so when it comes to resurrection faith i don't believe that we're dealing with a projection of the disciples faith that jesus was alive into narrative form that's what bultmann claimed yeah, famously the bultmann thing yeah um and you know i i you know, I understand why Bultmann was doing that, but but that's a that's a discussion for another day. Right, that's his yeah. yeah. And, and now and and 
I would say that one of the main reasons why I would say that this is not the case is because they did not expect to discover an empty tomb. They're they're shocked. They're perplexed. Right. They're they're afraid when well, they when think, they encounter and, and all these things. You know, to me, that 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 just really kind of puts the faith part of it even clearer because mm-hmm. the people back then didn't walk in. Well, they it, are living the dis- in this human space. The male disciples disbelieved, refused yeah. to believe at yeah, first, right? Because our, and I think I think this is what's so amazing because their own these these women and these disciples their own experience is just as human as our experience mm-hmm. and so the intersection that god comes in and to fully grasp what that means i mean this is that awe of it i mean I, I think if you have that kind of personal encounter you understand on a different level that's true and and, and then and then you're able to cut to make that leap of faith well, yeah you know so this is an aside but i work with you know i work with our kids our confirmation kids and i have a young man this year who beat the odds and survived as a, as a youngster, some very rare heart condition. And when you watch a kid like that, who's grown up and, and this realization that his life is such a gift, mm-hmm. um, they just have a, they have this kind of built in faith. They just, mm-hmm. they don't do the kind of questioning that other folks do. It's, it's an interesting. I've, yeah. I've encountered this several times with young people. Yeah. Um, and that's where he's at. I, I don't ever worry about him. Um, his faith wavering because sure. his faith is just, it's so part of who he is. He's had to live by faith his whole life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the only really serious question we have to deal with in connection with this passage is whether the empty tomb tradition, now we're not talking about the resurrection itself, but we're talking about this specific mm-hmm. passage, the empty tomb tradition is actually a projection of their faith that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And honestly, I'm not sure we're ever going to have an airtight argument for the historicity of the empty tomb mm. narratives, even though Jewish sources do mention it in a pejorative way. But part of the reason for this is because, although there does seem to be more than one account of the empty tomb reflected in the gospel tradition, it's not mentioned outside the gospels mm-hmm. in the rest of the New Testament. Right. It's, it's as if it never happened in the rest of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The rest of the New Testament primarily focuses on the post-resurrection appearances mm-hmm. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's true. And so again, I, I mean, what do we make of this? I don't know. But I, I think I would suggest, again, that all of what we're dealing here with here is in the realm of God's divine purpose breaking into history. And ultimately, that's a matter for faith and hope and not historical verification. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. But that that isn't interesting. That's one of the pieces that I've always just kind of assumed it has right? a historical space. I mean, right? that part my historical mind grasps that really mm-hmm. well. Oh, right. they went to the tomb. The tomb was to, empty. And, and they went to the tomb in, in this practical way, to, and, and the tomb was empty. So that is, um, yeah, that's an interesting one to process. But yet, it somehow, I feel that the Gospels would be a little lacking without it. Yeah, sure. Don't you? Surely, I do. But at the same time, I mean, we see that, that the empty tomb in and of itself doesn't generate faith. No, the empty no. tomb in and of itself creates as many questions it, as it does, that's you true, know, faith. That's true, but it seems to be an important part of the narrative, I guess. I think so, too. I, I think so, too. I, I guess in the for gospels. me it is. In the Gospels it is. Mm-hmm. But it's just amazing that the rest of the New Testament just kind of ignores it as if it never happened. And I think the focus was really more on the personal encounter with Christ. I, I, you see that in I the agree. New Testament. What, that's the what, focus. Yeah. Well, that just seems to take precedence, I think, in their minds. You know, that the personal encounters that they had with the risen Christ is really what transformed them, not 
being told that the tomb was empty. Nuts. Or, 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 or seeing this actual right. event happen. Right. And I, I think right. that's something to be said about that. Yeah. Now, I will say, on the other hand, the meaning of the resurrection is another matter. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament is very clear about that. The encounters with the resurrected Christ give rise to the faith of the early church. Mm-hmm. They transform what was seen as a tragedy, the cross, mm-hmm. into good news, right? It mm-hmm. is the heart of our faith and the good news that Jesus died for us. But initially, it was perceived as a tragedy by the by the disciples. Of course, yeah. In the proclamation of the book of Acts, I think we can also say that the resurrection is God's overturning of a faulty human verdict upon Jesus. That's found in several places in Acts. And also makes clear God's vindication of Jesus as both not only Christ, but also Lord. And so, um, um, you know, that's a pretty, we see that pretty clearly in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, Jesus is the one who represents the hope that all Christians have for sharing in his resurrected life and the ultimate kingdom of God. And so he's sort of the forerunner. Paul calls him the first fruits. Mm -hmm. Basically, Mm -hmm. he's the first one to be resurrected. And then after that, all others will be. Yes, yes. And then finally, Jesus' resurrection and the faith it inspires enables those who believe to experience a similar transformation in their present lives so that they live a new life here yeah. and now. So yeah. so we kind of have a resurrected kind of life already right, right. in now, this, this present is, age. This is very good. And, 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 it, and, and this ties in our whole experience, our whole purpose. Yeah, it's not um, just that, it's not just to give us something we can hope for that's going to happen someday way off in the future. It already transforms our, exactly. our life right yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's just brilliant. So... Indeed, I think that's, you know, just what we talked about before, that really keeps, gets us focused on this, this resurrection encounter. Surely. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to let Christy take a turn uh, talking to us about the Reformation. So uh, tell us what you found. Sure. And so I looked at mostly commentaries, but I also have just some background about some of the some of the history or some of the kind of the intellectual history of the time that kind of puts it in a context for us. So, but there's some interesting themes that emerge. But I think one of the important things to to remember is Easter, um, um, especially in in the Reformed tradition, uh, they try to take out its pageantry and they try to take out its specialness, um, and they lump it together with festivals that they find to be very Roman Catholic. So this the concern for this um, changes Easter Sunday. So there's of course regular preaching and such, but it doesn't have kind of that that ring like Easter today. And mm-hmm. I think in today's world, we, we have that, you know, people go to church on Christmas Eve and Easter Sunday, and they kind of elevate Easter. Right. And at least one of the churches I was at used to hire a bunch of musicians to come in, right. and it was really a great day, and it was full. But this is, it, especially with Calvin, this is something they wanted to get away from, so that really, they really subdued it. Now, I, I will say this, that this tradition of, of kind of making it a bigger day started to emerge in the 17th century again in, in, in the Scottish church. So it, it doesn't get to stay as kind of a mm-hmm. low-level uh, regular Sunday. But the emphasis for Calvin was always that 
every Sunday. Yes. Every Sunday right? we are celebrating the every resurrection Sunday. of Christ. Exactly. So um and we we just you have to keep that in mind. So what was interesting is I kind of expected, I don't know, that there would be more about the pageantry. This is Easter an Easter script and it and there wasn't. In fact, the commentary on it was really interesting. And one of the big themes was in the discussion about the women. Of course. And why, <laughs> why would the resurrected Jesus appear to women and not men? I just loved this. <laughs> and they, these guys, because with, with the exception of like some of our Anabaptist, really our Anabaptist women, most of these are guys that mm-hmm. are commenting and, and, um, and, and they, they run the spectrum, but they, they just, that doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't Jesus appear to the men, you know? And, and so, but I think that's an interesting question that maybe we don't ask as much today. We kind of don't want that to come to the women, but you know, they were asking this question and they, they wanted to justify it. And, um, <laughs> uh, one suggests that, um, um, that that the women who came, and it didn't add, in this case it was it wasn't about why, but said well they came and it just showed they didn't have real faith in Jesus because had they had real faith they would not have showed up to try to anoint the body because they would have known they would have been resurrected exactly <laughs> they would yeah they would be now th- no mention of the men there which I think is really right? interesting they didn't, they they didn't were, believe they either. didn't believe either right right, right. Um, but an interesting thing. Um, hmm. Again, other suggestions is that one claim Christ appeared to the women because it is preposterous that women would have stolen the body. Oh, so it was like a, a proof text right. that wasn't stolen because right. women wouldn't steal, which right. I thought was funny too. They wouldn't be able to steal the body, I guess, <laughs> yeah, exactly. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, or, and this one is a little more frightful, they, they, he tried to connect it to the Adam and Eve story, saying that, look, the, it's, mm. it's, the women are responsible for the death of humankind, mm. and therefore it's, it's like this reflection that um, it's, it's the women then that are the most desperate in need of salvation. Mm. I mean, so it's really that kind you know, of... You know, that's a really bad overemphasis on one statement in in one of the pastoral epistles of Paul when when you compare it with a whole half of the chapter Romans chapter 5 where Paul talks about Adam's role in bringing mm-hmm. death to all exactly. humankind right right so. i know i know but that you know that that at least among mm. certain circles and mm. you, you saw that in the reformation now, again i'm kind of i'm kind of lumping these reformers sure. together i would argue that that Calvin actually is more sophisticated sure. in his, Good. so this isn't Calvin specifically. Right. These are some, um, as I recall, these are Puritan guys. Mm-hmm. Not um, surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. And, yeah. and, and, and in line with the Puritan, um, um, the, the, uh, suggested that the, that the women were the first to learn of the resurrected, resurrected Jesus because Jesus was working through the lowly to announce the news. And this was very much a, I found two Puritan guys that were talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think what's interesting is, again, these are men that are interpreting this, and it's not noted that there's this long tradition in the world of female mystics that g- give special voice right. to women. Right. Um, and uh, it is the women um, who are the first to appear and share the gospel. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's picked up by, by like these Anabaptist groups, uh, the radical groups, um, and the idea that this is a 
an explanation for why women should preach. The sure. women are the first ones to share the good news, yeah, share the I, gospel. I had a colleague when I was at Southwestern Baptist Seminary who who presented, who made a presentation uh, um, to to the faculty, you know, in sort of a colloquium that you know, and he said the women were the apostles to the apostles yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Right? So what an interesting. Yeah. Now I I want to point out <laughs> that despite this kind of this thread that runs through these medieval female mystics and then is picked up by these Anabaptist women um, that the magisterial women reformers have to explain, look, that this happened, this is a one-time deal. Mm. This doesn't really mean women should be out there preaching. I think they, they missed an opportunity there. They did. They did, um, unfortunately, but it, it, it reflects the era. Surely. Um, I, I will say this, though. Um, Luther, in particular... Uh, um, recognized in the um, female um, uh, hymn writers, and mm-hmm. so that there's some voice there. Mm-hmm. Um, just I, I, I don't think Calvin did much of that. And though. women's role, well, and also like women's role in the household to be mm-hmm. training the household, especially when the father was was not there. So there's some there's some space for this, and of course Calvin recognized women's work amongst women how how cool would it have been though to for the magisterial reformers to have recognized a place for women in gospel ministry you know in the full ministry of the church well and you know the the anabaptists did they were very they were very in front on that um but they were also often put to death. So, yeah. but the, but we do have women preaching in those traditions. We do have records of of those of those women, and lots of hymn writers there, and lots of so it it it, it, it that position did exist during the Reformation, mm-hmm. but it just wasn't mainstream. Yeah, I, it, I wish I could wish that the that the magisterial reformers would have would have looked more carefully at that because you know even in that passage in First Timothy chapter two, um, and he, and Paul talks about the the role of women, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he's talking about how men should pray, lifting up holy hands, and that women should dress themselves modestly and decently. And I say Paul because. Paul is commonly right. believed to be the author. We don't really know. That's that's a real question. Uh, that they're to they're to clothe themselves with good with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence and full permission, in full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She's to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. But the thing about it is, you know. The thing that that you know again, this is a this is a strange passage, and it and it puts all the focus on Eve. Whereas in Romans chapter five, right, Paul really emphasizes Adam's role, and yeah, you know, yeah. and and the other thing is, um, the idea is let a woman learn, yeah, right, because what happens when they learn? They, they can lead, yeah, they can lead. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, so. it is. It, it, it is strange, and it's taken very literally, and I think you have to look at it of the context of the kind of letter that it is, which is, hey, this is how you're going to handle a church right. at this time. And I think— Dealing with dealing with a situation where the church is really in a fragile state. Right, right? and I think to some extent your magisterial reformers are in the same situation. Right. that makes sense. They're not going to push that far out of— that far out cultural uh, norms, just cultural yeah. norm thing that they're just not ready to go there. And, mm-hmm. and I, I always do point this out to folks too, as someone who studied some women's history, you have to remember that you're still in an era when 
I mean, you you don't really have any kind of contraception. Women, mm-hmm. um, childbirth is a much more serious and and business, and that it, it keeps you it keeps you off your feet. The childbirth and child rearing is not like it is today, and mm-hmm. so I I think there's there's a real sense of if women are having babies, they are they're full-time parents. Sure. I mean, that's how you feed your baby. Right, so I just, right. I think there's a little bit different. I, I just don't think it occurs to them in the same way, right. in a modern way. And it frustrates us a right. lot. It frustrates right. women a lot. And, and, and of course, you know, like if you're familiar with Christine de Pizan, she's a late medieval writer and um, she writes about the city of ladies and how there's all these wonderful ladies out there and they're smart and they're ladies of letters and they, they can do all these things, but yet, you know, the, the misogynist world doesn't allow them to, mm-hmm. to participate in a sh- women are aware of this that's going on, but it just takes a long time to move to each step to move. Well, to and even today step. we still have room to grow. Uh, always, always, yeah. always, always. Um, so, but what's interesting about this whole thing, <laughs> um, um, Calvin reminds us that the apostles were, were clueless, you know, um, that they just <laughs> refused to hear the women. Yeah. So, and then what's really also interesting with Calvin, I think, and it's a point that I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time with, but he makes a really important point here. He says, these are Jesus's most faithful followers and they all have disbelief. Mm-hmm. And he says, this is part of a good faith. Unbe- he quote, unbelief is in all men, which would be men and women always mixed with faith. Right. Unbelief is mixed with faith. That is huge. That is, is part of our Presbyterian tradition. But there are so many people out there that say, if you question, you don't really believe. Right. And Calvin right here says, but, but our apostles did. Yeah. So why there, are we there are putting... people who, there are people who are still arguing that point and arguing for that point today. I know. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this was, a, you know, Calvin was ahead of his time in, in this recognition. Uh, yeah, I, I he really say. was. And yeah. I, I think that was a really, and that, that's in Institutes, by the way, friends. Um, that's um, book three, uh, chapter two, verse four in uh, Institutes. Um, but but really important, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so back to the Puritan, lots of Puritan stuff on it. <laughs> um, I thought this was interesting. Uh, Richard Tavener, he was a, uh, he was a follower of Cranmer and, um, he said, look, look, quote, we should carry the ointments of grace to mortify and purge our bodies and to fell the vermin and contagion of the flesh to preserve it from corruption. <laughs> of um, course we should. <laughs> but, but what's important about this little saying here, I think, is, um, you know, I haven't talked that much about the Puritans. They are a, kind of a different branch of the Reformed tradition, but they get re- we know about them because of our, our pilgrim heritage, mm-hmm. right? I want to point out that um, we get into this 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 habit of of thinking of well, yes, in the in the Roman Catholic tradition they did all of these things to, if you will, earn the earn a grace, and we're supposed to have grace and we're supposed to respond in it. But the actual effect is really similar, and that you can identify who the religious are based mm-hmm. on what they're wearing, whether the purpose is in the Roman Catholic tradition that they are doing this is part of their earning uh, their salvation or as a, 
in the in the in the Protestant tradition as as evidence of their faith, mm-hmm. you can still point them out. And the problem is that in both cases, it can lead to um, kind of judgment of mm-hmm. identifying. Mm-hmm. Well, those people are the the in circle because those people are they responding. All right. They all look right. They're <laughs> responding. You know, and if you don't look right, you must not believe, and therefore they could pass judgment. And this is important because it becomes part of the whole witch trial piece. I think I think about the scarlet letter, you know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and you know, ob- how obvious would it have been, you know, for someone to have, and obviously it's a woman who has to wear this scarlet mm-hmm. letter around. Yeah, right, right. right. It's, it's just, yeah, incredible how, how externalized their faith was. Exactly. And how this is just a real trend within it. And what's what's so interesting about all of this when you think about this whole his his whole thing of you need to the carry the ointments <laughs> of grace and by that then you're going to as a preservation body, but how this theme can mm-hmm. run, how somebody can pick up on this theme and and in even in the even in the empty tomb narrative, that's that's amazing to me. Yeah, even in the empty tomb narrative, and how that becomes so dangerous that that reformers really have to fight against. And this mm-hmm. is just a little bit later, is what you find, and it's just right around. And we see it, of course, in our in the reform tradition. We see it with the Synod of Dort, but we see it with Geneva to some, some extent. And I guess I guess maybe taking sort of playing devil's advocate, maybe they saw their version of the new life was this mortification of the flesh and this purification yeah. from corruption. Yeah. So that's their version of the resurrected life that Christians have. Absolutely, right? absolutely. <laughs> Which is really kind of sad if you think about uh, it. Yeah, yeah. So really, um, and it, I see, I see that it's kind of that line between what I consider kind of. Calvin's theology, which is very thoughtful, you know, everyone has doubts and everyone's still a sinner. And what does your perfect world look like if everyone believes in Jesus? And and they don't always line up. Right. Um, and and I think we see that with us t- today. Sure. I mean, how many of us are saying, you know, we just look at the world and 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 we're going to go get that lost sheep and we're going to, but yet at the same time, how often who's do the we, lost sheep, right? Yeah, I mean, how often depends do, we, on... do we put that judgment on them? Of you know, even in our own churches, right? It's like. Oh yeah, well, you know, <laughs> despite their belief, I'm not sure I'm gonna that or practically we can't have that person work with children, <laughs> whatever, who's, right? Who's, so you know, I think of Nadia Bowles Weber. If Nadia Bowles Weber is not wearing her clerical garb and she's just out and about, you know, would would people from my church see her in in you know downtown Lincoln, Nebraska, and think? you know judge judge her because she has tattoos that she was someone who's outside of the faith right you know right. that still can happen can happen yeah so one of the other themes which is kind of fun is the role of angels and um you know the angels are it's kind of an we sometimes think it was kind of an extra kind of topic to study and it's kind of an interesting topic um, but and most of us kind of casually talk about angels you know we have our little angel collections and all those right. things. And yet um, the, er, the fathers have um, virtually nothing to say about them at all. And I did a little research and found that the first systematic treatment was by Pseudo Dionysius, about 500. Mm. Um, so really pretty late. Um, and and that, that's where you get all the, the levels of the angels that has kind of come into lore even uh, today, you know. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> um, and then, of course, in the Middle Ages, there was recognition of a- angels, and they were kind of concerned about what they were. And are they 
can they be resurrected? Did they take up space? Did they have mass? So these became are what what are what are they? What well, are I, these I, beings? I've always associated the the question about how many angels can fit on the head of a pen with medieval famous, scholastic theolo- theology. Famous right? famous <laughs> question, right? Right. And and yet that became part of, but never a question about their legitimacy. And so mm-hmm. this is very much true in Lutheranism. Uh, and, and Luther, Luther, yeah, absolutely identified with them. And in fact, the Lutheran Church still um, celebrates um, a Michaelmas today, um, which is a celebration of angels. Mm. And we don't in uh, reform. we're kind of looking at this in Reformed tradition going, oh, we, we don't do that. Yeah. It's kind of a harvest festival, but um, end of September or early October, but it was definitely feast day kind of thing. And mm-hmm. Luther definitely hung on to it. Now, that is not to say that Calvin did not, he also believed in angels, right? They are in there, but he didn't spend a lot of time processing what they were. But if you read through the Institute, you definitely see his reference to Mm -hmm. them all the time. They Mm -hmm. definitely reflected that those were were real. Um, So uh, it's kind of an interesting aside because they have a big role in this. well, and maybe Calvin and, and some of the other Reformed people were influenced by Hebrews. The book of Hebrews really emphasizes, de-emphasizes angels and emphasizes more the role of Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and there, is, there are other places where it seems like the worship of angels was a, was a problem in some of right, the early churches, right. the so, Colossians. Right. So perhaps that was something that was influencing them. I don't know. Uh, could be. Um, I noticed- I've, always, I've always preferred to think about the presence of God it's it's really been more comforting to me for God to be present with me or for, for Christ to be present right. with me or the spirit to be present with me rather than to think of a guardian angel, you know, watching right, over me. Right, right. It's kind of an interesting, interesting <laughs> yeah. space. And But anyway, um, yeah, and so there's some, you know, what are they? Maybe some kind of manifestation of God, you know, mm-hmm. that we can wrap our brains around. But I thought it was interesting. And one of the more inter- pieces that I liked was a, a Lutheran pastor, Johann Boomgart, adds that uh, the appearance of angels shows that God's wrath towards humanity is lifted with the resurrection as these angels are kind and pleasant to these women. They, they, they're, 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 they're gentle with them. And I think they're contrasting it then to the, um, the garden when right, the angels the angel. shut them out and, right. you know, and with the flaming sword. Exactly. And exactly. Yeah. So kind of an interesting space. Like this is a, these gentler angels reflect the, uh, uh, the the work of Christ. I think I would push back a little bit on, uh, toward him, though, by saying, you know, throughout Luke's gospel, the appearance of angels is something, right. you know, th- th- that's pretty consistent. That's pretty consistent, exactly. Yeah. It's Although not just he, about the resurrection but he of the might cross. Argue, he might argue that that was connected. He, connected. Right. I, I think right. he would. I, right. I didn't read his whole that. piece, but... Um, so, but for him, the big theological implication is of the reconciliation of humankind to God. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, on, on another note, the only, now, Alan can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the only contemporary um, um, theologian is Karl Barth that really does something with angels, at least. I don't know that. Yeah. 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 I haven't really pursued that myself. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, so it's kind of an interesting um it's kind of an interesting hmm because it's right. something we kind of just don't spend a lot of time. Well, no. except for pop culture, I think right. does it 
more. So, and then finally, uh, the resurrection scene is an affirmation of the bodily resurrection, which as Christ was raised in his body. Mm -hmm. Um, And Calvin uses this in his institute to make this point. But as you know, um, that the nature of the resurrection was one of the early heretical questions of the early church, you know, was indeed Christ, you know, really human? And did, did he really mm. rise from the dead? And all those questions. So this is something Calvin wanted to deal with in Dealing institutes. with the, the Christ's divine nature and his yep. human nature yep. and how yep. they interacted. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah, so that became a, that was a, you know, these magisterial reformers wanted to make sure that they were in line with the fathers. It was very, mm-hmm. I think people forget that. Um, sometimes they think, oh, well, they want to get rid of all the creeds and they want to go. They were just no, going they, back to the New Testament, right. yeah, back the, to the Bible. But they wanted to be in line with um, what they saw, the, the true church, um, not mm-hmm. kind of what happened in the medieval church. Well, and, you know, I think that's interesting because, you know, you, you have a lot of people who have the call back to the New Testament or back to the Bible in, in our day and time, and they ignore that tradition of the fathers yeah. and, and the theological tradition of the church, which you know, can lead to all kinds of excess, you know, in terms uh, of how, where they wind up theologically. Yes, exactly. So I, mean, I think it's interesting that, I think it's important that the magisterial reformers wanted to right. go back to the Bible, but they wanted to, wanted to, right. you know, hold on to the tradition yeah. of, of the early church. Absolutely. Well, as you know, I think they found there was reasons that some of these directions took, took people into very problematic heresies. Sure. And so they're like, these folks have already dealt with this. Right. We have dealt with this. But right. they continue to during the Reformation, and almost all of the heresies that we see in the early church reemerge in the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And that is partly why um, some of these groups are so violently attacked. Now, we may disagree with that approach, but that is that is partly what sure. happens. And it even affects the resurrection of Christ. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. Hey, everybody. We're back just to have some reflection on these passages. And I think, you know, we have, uh, Alan had a lot of interesting, nitty-gritty stuff to talk about with the scriptures. And I kind of went into some kind of interesting, but maybe not so important historical discussion. And so, you know, it's Easter Sunday, and we have a lot of new folks coming to our churches. Um, It is one of those Sundays that people will show up. And so, you know, I think if we get into some of these weeds, we might miss the point uh, that, that folks need to get to, which is to really think about why this, what's important about this passage. And I think, I think we pointed it out, but it's, it's this encounter with the risen Christ. Yeah. And so I, I, think, I think encouraging folks to somehow get to that point in some way, maybe it's about what it means to you or, or your encounter or, or something like that. I don't know. What do you think, Alan? Well, I think, you know, so I think Easter is a difficult time to preach because it's kind of like Christmas Eve. You know, you're going to have people who've been in church all their lives, and you're going to have people who rarely darken the door of a church. And so how do you say something that's meaningful for people on both ends of that spectrum and mm-hmm. all every, mm-hmm. everywhere in between, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I really do think sharing your own personal experience might be very fitting, you know, on Easter Sunday because I found that's kind of what I've been doing 
on e- on Christmas Eve, and I found mm-hmm. that to be a helpful mm-hmm. approach. Is just to get really instead of being instead of being my Bible teacher and preacher right. self, I really just try to get down to the level of this is why this is important. This is why this day is important mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. and this is why what we what we emphasize on this day is mm-hmm. important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think I, I think that's kind of the approach that you see in the New Testament with regard to the resurrection. You don't really see but, a whole lot of, you know, you don't. The, the New Testament doesn't really address those kinds of scientific and historical questions that we, right, were, con- right. we were talking about at the end of my well, segment. That's not really an issue so much. And I think you know what's interesting. We talked about that. There's these differences in account these accounts, and it's hard to make kind of this historical mm-hmm. narrative of them that makes sense, or that there's these inconsistencies and I think I think that's part of the point but, but they all have the story yeah. but they all have the story and they don't talk about the tomb because that's not the important part it's mm-hmm. the encounter with risen Christ yeah. and I think that is that's where that meat is um, for folks but I think it's tempting I've got to do something new mm-hmm. I've got I've got to uncover this I've got to I, I've got to teach all this and I think when we do that, then we, then people, you see, I'm thinking of, we're, we're doing Good Friday for the first time in my church. But so I'm hoping that people that are, have been in the church, I hope they're so low by Friday. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, we're going to cry. This is a sad, because I want them to feel lifted, all their burdens and I wanted mm-hmm. them to feel filled with hope on mm-hmm. Easter Sunday. But if mm-hmm. if I can't deliver something that offers that hope, which then all of a sudden it's like it's like it's a hold that down. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, to me, to me, and I, to me, it's about sticking with the basics. You know, yeah. It's about sticking with the basics on Easter Sunday, and and so. But what are the basics? You know, that's what the are question. The ba- what are the and, basics? And, and, and to me, this is where I focus on the living one. And this is where I focus on God's work of new creation mm-hmm. that is beyond our ability really to conceive or to understand, but it breaks into our reality and transforms mm-hmm. it. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I I focus on the language of new creation a lot. I Yes, I think that's really good. I, 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 I think a lot of people don't understand that language right? because it's not really language that we use in our culture. It's not really traditional language in the church even. Right. Uh, you know, the ch- in the church, the gospel is that we are forgiven of our sins and we get to go to heaven for eternity. It's not about what God is doing to transform all things right. and all people. Right, right. And I, I, you know, one of my favorite verses is from Revelation 21.5. And, and mm-hmm. you know, there, um, there's only two places in the book of Revelation where where the one on the throne speaks. Uh, he's The one on the throne speaks in Revelation chapter 1 and says, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha mm-hmm. and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. This is God speaking. Right, right. I know a lot of, I know a lot of Bibles put that in, in, print that in red as if it's the words of Christ. It's not the words of Christ. It's the, it's the ancient of days who says mm-hmm. this in, in Revelation chapter one. And then in Revelation chapter 21, again, the one sitting on the throne says, behold, I make all things, things new. new. Yep. Yep. And to me, that is so central to my understanding of what God is doing in this world and what the gospel is all about, what the resurrection is all about. Mm-hmm. It is the, it is the, 
incursion of God's new creation mm-hmm. into the historical order yeah, of things. Yeah, exactly. And, and and one of the reasons why it's so crucial to me, and I got this from Moltmann, you won't be surprised about this, but one of the reasons why it's so crucial to me is it's kind of like what Paul says, with without the resurrection, mm-hmm. our faith is futile. And that really the Christian faith really right. does stand right, or fall. Right, right. On, exactly. on the resurrection of exactly. Jesus. And I think... And, 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 and so, Moltmann says it this way, without this kind of hope of God's work of new life in this world and, and that God is going to ultimately transform all right. things, all we have are these vicious cycles of death. Yeah, yeah. That just, that's just all there is. Exactly. It's just vicious cycles it's, of death. It's a very... It's, it's, uh, people that try to be... Claim to be Christians, which you know, I, we might argue... They're not, you know, we, we see these groups of people that say, well, if we can't prove this is a historical event, if we can't, if, if, if we can't, um, if we can't pinpoint this in some way, shape or form, then, then it's not, doesn't, doesn't really happen. So we're just going to have a faith that we're, we're just going to look at Jesus just as a teacher because he's right. a really good teacher. Moral or, teacher. Yeah. Or, 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 you know, we're, we're going to. Um. Yeah. Or we we're gonna believe in everything, but we really can't buy into the risen Christ piece because it just doesn't make mm-hmm. sense with our scientific. The reality is, it's it's as you point out, this is central for our faith to this 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 that that God has done something new. Yeah. You know, and and Jesus coming into our world, shaping it, changing it. That's huge. Right? And, yeah. and and not only not only in in his life, right. but in his death and resurrection, yes. that introduces oh. a whole different level of change. Yep. yep. You know, in that you know the new create. You know, as yep. As, yep. as again, I'm citing Moltmann here. The new creation yep. already projects itself into the present time. You know, it's right. something we right. look forward to as what God is going to complete in the future. Right. But. There's already that newness now. Exactly. We don't have to wait, you know, till to some un, unspecified point in the future for for this hope to be right. realized. We can already see glimpses of that new creation yeah, in we can. the present right, day right. in our lives, right. in the in the grace that we find, in the mercy that we share right, with one another, right. in the love that we that we that we share with one another in the in the body of Christ and with mm-hmm. our communities. You know, right. we can see those those are those and are sort of glimpses. Yeah, of the that, new creation that whole already transformed now. world when that happens. Yeah. I uh, yeah, I like to talk about being resurrection people. Yeah. That's that's yeah. some of the language I yeah. use a lot. Um, you know, we and not having of course we've talked about, you know, the Roman Catholic emphasis on the death more than the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the the idea of the resurrection, that's that's where that it's almost a giddy excitement when you really think about um when you really think about the fullness of, of being forgiven and the and the and the newness of of living in a life mm-hmm. as a disciple, and you know, and I I fear that a lot of the people that come to church on Easter Sunday, you know, Easter is more about Easter egg hunts and presents and new suits and new dresses. And it's not really right. about what it's really about, you know. It's, well, that's true. It's it's yeah, and and you know, we we just we think of Jesus as this guy who lived and died so long ago, mm-hmm. and I think it's almost hard for some people to even see how, apart from the moral teachings that he gave, right. how does Jesus impact my life at all? Right. And right. I think that's that's that 
that's you know that's where people are living in those vicious cycles of death where life right. just kind of perpetually is de- decaying and disintegrating right. Right. and falling oh, apart yeah. Yeah. and dying and that's yeah. that's what life is you know you pay your taxes and you die right. that's right. life and you know i i want to try to find a way on easter to express the fact that my faith in the risen christ in the living one Right, the one right. who shares the life of God, right, um, and and the one who is imparting that life to us to transform us. You know, right. He's the living stone. We become living stones mm-hmm. in the temple that God is building, right? Or, or to to put it differently, you know, He's the one who injects this life into the new creation, and so this new creation life is like is like spreading throughout the whole world slowly right. like right. a vaccine that's transforming, right. you know, a body. Um, and, and, um, you know, that, that excitement and that faith and that hope is something that I want to try to project, right. you know, that, that well, this, that, that right. it, it wasn't just an event confined to something that happened in the first century. Right. It's, it's something that has transformed life ever since and continues to transform life today. You know, as I think about, this conversation and I agree, but I'm loving, um, I'm loving, I'm loving our own energy that's coming from it. And I mm-hmm. think if we can convey that energy, mm-hmm. if we convey how somehow how Jesus is working on our lives is one, it strikes me as one of those days, which we say always, but that we're God's, we, God's voice works through us. Sure. I think it's, I think it's going to be successful, but I think, especially with all the stuff we presented today, it's going to be tempting to overthink it. Mm-hmm. So that would be right. my thought. Yeah. I, I, you know, so maybe the bottom line is what excites you about yeah. the living one? What yeah. excites you yeah. about the resurrected Christ? What excites you about the, what God's work of new creation in the world today? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. All right. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.